Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Maya Van Rossum. Maya, glad, glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this for a while. I'm really excited to be here and for the opportunity to spread the message. I've been waiting for this for a while. We spoke before. Listener, regular listeners know that some time ago, I had this idea because I was reading about abolition and Abraham Lincoln and the 13th Amendment, and I had this crazy idea that when I first had it, I thought, no, that, that's so crazy, it doesn't make any sense. Don't even waste time thinking about it. And that was to make an amendment, something like the 13th Amendment, on pollution. And I went online and found that Gaylord Nelson had proposed an amendment guaranteeing the right to a clean environment in 1970. His daughter, Tia Nelson, has been a guest on this podcast. So I contacted her and she's like, this, yeah, this is not a crazy thing. And um, then anyone who works on this sort of thing knows you because you've been working on it, a Green Amendment, for significantly longer. And I think you are, you may be the main person, are you the main person working on this? And if so, can you give a bit of background on yourself and, and how you came to it? Yeah, so so I, I think I am the main person working on it. Um, but I have, you know, certainly on a nationwide level, I'm really trying to inspire communities to join me on this pathway of, of seeking and securing a constitutional right of all people to clean water, clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments. Um, but the way I go about doing this work is really working with communities in states across our nation. So while I may be sort of the person working nationwide, and prioritizing advancing this pathway for environmental rights and environmental protection, there are many, many people across the U.S. who have joined me because that's the only way we're going to succeed. And I think that in that response, you hear a little bit about my strategy. My strategy is really going state by state by state, seeking what I have defined to be constitutional green amendments that lift up environmental rights to the highest constitutional level um, so that they are legally recognized and protected on par with other fundamental rights, like the right to free speech and freedom of religion, for example. And then as we go forth and do this work, we will not only be securing this most powerful protection state by state by state in the near term, but we will also be laying the foundation necessary to ultimately seek and secure a federal green amendment, because we really need both. We need constitutional environmental rights recognition that meet my green amendments definition at the state level and at the federal level, if we want to ensure that all government officials here in the United States are respecting and protecting the environmental rights of all people. There are so many directions to go here. You say that we need this. And to me, it's also what more, the more and more I think about it, the more it's not just, yes, we need it, but also it's, it's like a glaring omission that it's not there in the first place, which makes sense in 1787. No one could foresee what we, you know, the amount of pollution and, and PFASs and all these different things. Uh, do people come to you? as I did because they came up with it and discovered you? Or do you tend to find people and motivate them? Because it feels like a crazy idea at first and makes so much sense with just a bit of thinking about it. Well, the truth is most people actually believe they already do have a right, an enforceable right to a clean, safe and healthy environment. 
Um, and so they don't really think about it that much. They're told all the time in um, press events and rallies and by government officials of one sort or another, you know, you have a right to clean water, to clean air. And so people actually believe that this entitlement already exists. And they are quite shocked when they, so they don't, you know, they don't think about it. And you certainly don't talk about it in school because it's not, it actually doesn't exist. But anyway, um, people then are quite shocked when they um, hear me speak or read my book and hear me say that while you may have this right in your heart and in your mind, because it's not recognized um, and protected in an enforceable way in our state and federal constitutions, it is really a right in name only. Um, and and to me, that means you don't actually have the right. If you can't enforce it, then, you know, it's, it's great language, but the right doesn't actually exist. Um, and so the way people typically... Um, come to this message is because I'm out there in the world trying to spread the good word and not only inform people that unfortunately they don't actually have a right to a clean, safe and healthy environment, but more importantly, help them to also recognize that there is a pathway that they can take a lead role in ensuring that they actually do secure this right. And it is by working with me and my Green Amendments for the Generations organization and movement to advance this right in in their state and to become part of that movement, right? And by getting an actual constitutional amendment, we make a difference. So that's sort of a little bit of a longer answer to your question. But I think truly the way in my experience, people come to um, recognize the value, the power and the importance of constitutional recognition of environmental rights is because somehow um, the universe has brought them into my path and I uh -huh. share the message. Yeah, th this concept just continues to blow my mind because, I mean, I asked the question as I keep framing it. It's still in my head of this crazy idea, even though I'm past that. But then you're, you're, what you're saying is, is beyond the other direction that, how do how, so many people think we already have it? How can we not have it? How can we, how can we imagine a world? Yeah, I, I tend to think there must be some right. Ah, oh, this is crazy. I, I, I thank you for blowing my mind. Uh, that I would think that this would just be baked in, even if not for uh, some of the m more past several generation issues of. I mean, like back before, you, people couldn't have imagined global warming or the extinction rates that we're seeing or all sorts of different things. But just the ability to stop. I mean, I was, what was I listening to a little while ago? Someone was talking about growing up next to some big, every now and then they'd have to stop baseball games because the amount of, of soot and people's eyes burning and they couldn't stop it. It didn't occur to me that like, you see how I'm kind of struggling to put into words what I'm well, like, how could we not yeah. have that? And yet you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is um, um, first off, people just have this expectation because the, it, this is an inalienable human right. But again, because it's not enforceable to me, it's not actually um, an entitlement because when it's infringed upon, <laughs> 
there's not all that much that people can do about it. But one of the reasons also why just, you know, instinctually people believe that they have this this right. Um, one of the reasons why they also believe that this right already exists and or is protected because they're hearing all the time about the existence of state and federal laws that are focused on environmental protection. They hear all the time about state and federal agencies that are focused on environmental protection. Um, but what most people don't understand is that actually the way our system of laws at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level are framed when it comes to the environment is they're really framed to focus on legalizing environmental pollution, degradation, and harm through a system of reviews and permits. They are not focused on preventing pollution, degradation, and harm, right? People hear about the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, and they hear about how it's illegal to fill in wetlands, and they learn about the Endangered Species Act and all this effort to protect species. But the truth is, none of those laws um, make it illegal to fill in waterways, to spew pollution into the air, into the water, into the environment, to take species that are on the brink of extinction, to fill in wetlands. I mean, none of that's illegal as long as you get the right reviews and the right permits from the right agencies. And most people don't understand that that's how the law works. They don't understand that environmental racism is literally built in to the system of environmental laws and governance that we have here in the United States of America. So that communities of color and indigenous communities, low-income communities, are not just by accident or by happenstance um, exposed to higher levels of pollution and environmental degradation that devastates their health and their lives, but they are actually subjected to these higher levels of pollution and degradation than the rest of the community by design uh, under this system of laws and governance that we have. The idea is you concentrate all the pollution in, in one area next to one community and ostensibly you save everybody else. Um, so it's, it's incredibly inequitable. So systemic racism is part of environmental governance here in the United States of America, just like systemic racism is part of so much else that happens here in the United States. But one of the ways we can check that that abuse of power, those inappropriate laws that are focused on legalizing pollution and degradation and environmental racism, rather than focused on prevention of harm first and ensuring equitable protection for all people, is to lift up our environmental rights so they are given highest constitutional standing in the Bill of Rights section of our state and federal constitutions, along with other key elements and language. That ensures that when our government officials, whether they're legislating, regulating, permitting, whatever it is they're doing, whenever they infringe on that inalienable human right to a clean, safe and healthy environment, we the people can turn to the Constitution to do something about it. So first you blew my mind and now you're making me want to cry when you point out how these laws are designed to enable mining and so forth. And it makes sense when you say it, and I don't like to think of it, but it's like, I guess there, well, that's the difference between, I had on the podcast, uh, Michael Hertz, who's a constitutional lawyer, 
And I asked him when I first spoke to him about the the prospect of a of a an amendment. He said, "What does that achieve that statutory law wouldn't?" And I said, "What statutory law?" Because <laughs> I didn't really know the difference. And your background is a lawyer, am I right? Yes. And so, what's the difference between a constitutional amendment and statutory law that says something very similar? At I don't know at the state level or at the federal level. I mean, it's vastly different. Vastly okay, so different. I just did I just so, reveal how little I know about law. Sure. Sorry about that. No, no, no. I mean, it's really it, it is one of the core questions that everybody asks. So first off, right, we have to remember that the Constitution provides the overarching guidance for all government action and activity. Again, no matter what government is doing, whether they're passing laws or regulations or issuing permits or investing money or creating agencies or undertaking reviews to decide whether or not a project is a, is a good idea. Um, the Constitution guides all of that. And so when you include in the Constitution a right of the people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment and make clear that all government officials at every level of government are constitutionally obligated to protect the natural resources of their state for both present and future generations, then all of that government action and activity has to be undertaken with an eye towards fulfilling those constitutional rights and obligations. Um, and so as a result, by using the appropriate Bill of Rights placement and the appropriate language, we ensure that whenever government is acting in a way that the environment and environmental rights will be impacted, that they are considering um, environmental protection and these constitutional entitlements and obligations. That's sort of number one. Um, number two, you know, the, the thing is, you can never possibly pass a law that will cover every scenario, every situation, every kind of contaminant, every kind of industry in every single circumstance, right? You can put in place laws that offer that broad guidance when it comes to water pollution or certain kinds of industries or development practices, but they're always going to be unique situations that require a different level of protection or decision-making because of the unique circumstances, right, of, of, of a particular location. You know, if you place an industrial operation in one location versus another, the ramifications of that industrial operation are going to be significantly different for the environment, for species, and for human health. And yet the way the laws are written, right, they sort of say broad strokes when this industry is operating, they should use these kinds of technological practices and they're allowed to issue X amount of Y pollution into the air or into the water. And if they meet that limitation, you know, all is right with the world. The problem is an industrial operation that's um, located in immediately adjacent to a school or in, in a location where there are already 10 other industrial oper operations spewing the same kind of pollution into the air, they're going to have different levels of impact and harm on the environment and on communities that are not specifically addressed by the law. So the result is that in reality, even though we have lots of laws and regulations, when you look at what is actually happening on the ground, 
We have people who are drinking poison water and people who are breathing contaminated air, right? Kids who are in school who are breathing in so many neurotoxicants from industrial operations around that it's literally harming their capacity to learn. People who are breathing in air that is so contaminated, it's causing an asthma attack or a heart attack or resulting them in, in them getting Alzheimer's disease later in life, right? We have... Um, development practices that are resulting in so much water rushing off of the land that it's causing flooding and flood damages downstream. That is with the existing laws in place. So when you have this overarching constitutional guidance and you can see that the implementation of a particular law exactly as it's written is going to result in so much harm to the environment or to communities that it rises to that constitutional level of infringement, people can then, including government officials, can turn to the Constitution and say, hey, as implemented, this law still is creating a problem. The people have a constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, so we must do better in this location for this industrial operation you know, um, next to this community and put in place those better protections or make a decision that this is simply is not the right safe place to undertake whatever it is that's being proposed. Um, but that is one of the, the differences, the, the, the laws, we have lots of laws, but, you know, we can't cover every single circumstance. You need that overarching guidance. And of course, there are a lot of things you mentioned them, PFAS. You know, decades ago, when laws were being written about water pollution, we didn't know about PFAS contamination, that man-made family of toxic chemicals that now has been has proliferated into the water supplies of hundreds of millions of people um, that and is literally causing serious and significant um, harm to their health, including cancers and impacts to children that are just being born and more. So in those situations, when there are new emerging contaminants or new industrial operations that the laws couldn't anticipate and haven't addressed while the law and lawmakers are catching up, so to speak, the people and government officials can in that interim period turn to the constitutional right to clean water, clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments to cover that new emerging whatever um, to ensure that it's not allowed to advance or be to be used in a way that's causing devastating harm, right? So the constitutional right can fill the gaps in the laws. It can take the laws that already exist and strengthen them when they need to be strengthened in a certain circumstance. They can become the foundation to um, encourage, to convince lawmakers that new laws need to be passed to provide strengthened protections because what we see happening on the ground demonstrates that there's a problem. So all those places and spaces, the Constitution can come in and help. And when the laws are strong enough, when they are doing the job necessary to protect communities and the environment, then great. The Constitution is simply there as additional support and recognition that this is a good law written the right way, being properly implemented and protecting communities and the environment. And we don't need to turn to the Constitution in those circumstances. 
But in those places and spaces where our laws, as written and as implemented, fundamentally fail us, we can turn to the Constitution for those additional protections that are needed and necessary. So it's a whole other level. I mean, it really is a world of difference. It. I mean, I do like think. I mean, like what I really say to people is think about it, right? Think about the right to freedom of religion. We have a constitutional entitlement, and then we have laws that help give definition to that constitutional right and make sure that government officials are protecting that right in 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 all the the ways that they that they can. We have those laws are being implemented by government officials. But when that system of laws, those laws that are written and their implementation breaks down and people feel like their right to freedom of religion is being violated because of that government action or decision making um, that where the government is either infringing or the government is allowing a third party to infringe, well then people in that context turn to the Constitution, right? It's how it works for all fundamental rights. We have constitutional guidance. Then we have laws to help implement it. Then we have regulations that give it further refinement in more localized contexts. Then we have permits for specific circumstances and conditions. And when that system works, great. But when that system of laws, regulations, and implementation fail us, people turn to the Constitution to protect those fundamental rights. One of the ways I've been thinking about it myself is how would I try to implement the right to free speech without a constitutional amendment? And I, it's like it can't be done. So it, it feels like this is a place where it's it, – Yeah. It can't be done. Well, you know, the thing is it's not that it – it can't be done. It's just that you're dependent on, you know, the good graces of good government officials to do the right thing. And when government officials don't do the right thing and infringe on your right to free speech, if there was not a constitutional entitlement, well, bummer for you, because through our constitution, we have given our lawmakers the right to govern over us. And in giving them that entitlement to govern over us, we don't include a limitation on their ability to govern in a way that infringes on our right to free speech. Then when they infringe, we lose because we gave them the right, the legal right to govern and for them to decide what it means to have a right to free speech. But because in that free speech context, we have this higher constitutional entitlement where we have said to government officials, look, you have the right to govern over us, but when you govern, there are some limitations. There are some rules of the road. And one of the rules of the road is that you can't govern in a way that allows an infringement on my right to free speech. And so when government officials govern in a way that allows an infringement of the right to free speech, then we, the people, can turn to the Constitution to say, hey, government, you overstepped. You overreached. We gave you permission to govern over us, but not in this way. And we can hold government accountable and get our rights back. But because we don't have that same limitation, that same entitlement when it comes to the environment, we have simply said to the government, it's on you to figure out what you want to do about the environment. And so when they pass laws that legalize 
so much pollution, degradation, devastation, and harm that it devastates our very lives, usually to benefit industry and big business or their own political coffers, then we, the people, are stuck because what the government did was very legal. But if we have this constitutional, overarching constitutional entitlement, then while a behavior may comply with a law and so ostensibly be considered legal, if it rises to the level of infringing on our constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, well, now it's unconstitutional. So therefore, it's not legal, right? We can turn to the constitutional to the to the constitution to remedy our problems. That's the difference. Who has the ultimate power? If there's a constitutional entitlement, we the people have the ultimate power. If there isn't, then we've just handed our power over to the government to our government officials to use or misuse as they see fit. And there's nothing we can do about it when they misuse it, except try to find other laws or entitlements that maybe give us some way to hold them accountable. But it's much more difficult and and generally um, not successful. One of the things of my journey of the past decade or so of living more sustainably is to belie a belief that I had that trying to live more sustainably, like, well, I don't want to pollute, but, you know, it's the necessary result of things that make my life better was a way I looked at things before. And the more that I jettison a lot of those things, I find that exactly what I thought I would lose, I tend to get more of. And I think a lot of people feel like, wait, if we if we can't pollute, we're going to lose some of the most important things. Now, what I'm getting at is for me, a future that's sustainable of of a of a clean environment for all has becoming more and more and more desirable to me. It, it's such a brighter future than the present or the future that would be if we don't pass amendments like this. What kind of future do you foresee? And, and what kind of future do, are people afraid of this? Like, wait, if we do, if we can't pollute, we lose important things, which to me is a fallacy, but I didn't know that until I experienced it. And I think a lot of people still feel it. So, I mean, there there are lots of ways to think about and answer your very important question. I think, you know, for for the most part, first off, when you talk to people about the right to a clean, safe and healthy environment, to clean water and clean air, again, first off, they, they start from the position, but don't I already have that? And then, of course, when I disabuse them of that notion, <laughs> they become offended. They become shocked and they immediately understand just intuitively the power and the importance of having that constitutional recognition. Where you get pushback is from industry and developers, right? And business operations and biz, big, big business owners, not the little guys, from their friends in government who are benefiting from their lobbying dollars, right? And, and their campaign contributions. And then those, those people come forth with false allegations of how constitutional green amendments are going to be harmful because they're going to have things like, this is the term I hear all the time, unintended consequences. That's a big one. Unintended consequences. Or we're going to have so much litigation, the world is going to end. 
You know, we're not going to be able to have any progress. We're not going to be able to have any quality of life because all economic development is going to stop. And they really fear monger people into being paralyzed around this issue or being afraid of it or not suddenly feeling like, no, I don't understand. And so my, part of my job to come in as the expert on this, the national expert on this, is to really like help alleviate those fears for people, help them understand that they're their intuitive sense that this is a right that belongs to the people that should be in the Constitution, and they should be angered and angry when their government officials tried to advocate against it, or when um, business owners and operators try to advocate against it. That that sense of anger, right, and shock and concern is right, is is appropriate, because we as people are entitled to these clean, safe, and healthy environments that are essential to our lives. And we don't have to sacrifice our clean water and our clean air and our healthy environments for lives that are fun and enjoyable and sustainable and where we have good paying jobs. It all depends on how we go about it. So think about in the energy context, right? In the energy context, we have the energy industry comes forth and frames the question when it comes to energy. The question is, should we frack for gas from shale or should we frack for oil or not? If you don't frack, if you don't have oil and gas, you're not going to have the power you need you know, to have a happy life. But that's not the question. The question is not, do we frack or don't we frack? Do we use fossil fuels or don't we use fossil fuels? The question is, how do we go about creating energy? And when you frame the question that way, there are many, many ways to create energy that are significantly more protective of the environment, human health, quality lives, and future generations, like wind power and like solar. And yes, they do have a footprint but the kind of footprint they have, the extent of the footprint they have when it comes to environmental impacts is dramatically different. And you can have that comparison for everything. When, how, where to develop a residential or commercial development, how to advance manufacturing of any number of goods um, that people utilize in their daily lives. The, how do we how do we create pharmaceuticals? Um, all of these things can be done in a way that has devastating harm to the environment or can be done in a way that is protective of the environment, protective of human health. Sometimes we have to say no to a particular operation in a particular location. But overall, it's the, it is about how, when, where we do it. And with a constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, we make sure that government is always focused on how do we advance all of these things that are part of modern day life in a way that protects the environment and protects human health. My personal mantra is, I don't care what your personal belief is. I don't care if you believe in economic development, in recreation, in education, and, and protecting human health and quality of life and family values in loving animals. I don't care what your personal priority is in terms of your life goal, your life focus and where you, you know, where you focus your energies. You will always on a community basis, you will always better accomplish that goal 
if you do it in a way that's environmentally protective. And a constitutional green amendment makes sure that we are always looking to accomplish all of those goals in a way that's environmentally protective. And that's the fundamental difference. I wonder if you could walk through a success case, because I think Pennsylvania Pennsylvania has a, an amendment. And do you remember right that Pennsylvania had a case where something like a, a, a constitutional green amendment helped? And what did it do? So there are there are three states that have what I call green amendments, Pennsylvania, Montana and New York. There are lots of states that talk about the environment or even talk about environmental rights, but they don't fulfill my green amendment criteria. And as a result, they don't lift up environmental rights to that highest constitutional standing and really give the power to the people versus giving the power to the lawmakers to determine what it means to have an environmental right. So I just want to be clear with people that a green amendment is not just any kind of environmental rights amendment. It's an environmental rights amendment that meets specific criteria. That's why I wrote the book, The Green Amendment, and the website um, for thegenerations.org. You can also get there by typing in greenamendments.org. And that lays out what those key criteria are to get that highest protection for the environment. Now, in Pennsylvania, the um, the existing Green Amendment had actually been in place for many decades, but it had been misinterpreted by the courts and essentially robbed of all of its legal life very early on. But fast forward to 2012, when the Pennsylvania legislature passed an excruciatingly pro-fracking law um, that while fracking was already happening in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, this law was going to allow things to get exponentially worse. The industry was going to benefit from automatic waivers from environmental protection standards. The industry, by virtue of this state law, was going to be allowed to frack in every part of every community in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, including with operating industrial well pads and their 24-7 noise, light, and pollution being allowed to be located as close as 300 feet from people's homes. The industry was going to be, rel be relieved of the obligation to notify people on private drinking water wells that their drinking water had become potentially contaminated by nearby fracking operations with toxic contamination and much, much more. So the situation when it came to fracking in Pennsylvania was already bad, but it was going to get dramatically worse. And I, in my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, along with my organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, knew that we had to challenge this law because of its devastating consequences. And so as we were developing our legal strategy, we were thinking about, well, how do you challenge a law that's passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, right? It's all very legal. Um, if, you know, you could protest and try to get them to repeal it or modify it, none of that was going to work. If you really want to challenge, effectively challenge a law, you have to have a higher power. You have to have higher authority. And we recognized at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network that in the Pennsylvania Constitution, in the Bill of Rights section, there was this long ignored Article 1, Section 27 that recognized the right of all the people to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. And the duty of all government officials at every level of government, from the local town council to the legislature to the governor's office, 
to protect the natural resources of the state for present and future generations. And so we use that constitutional language as a cornerstone of our legal challenge. Um, we were actually joined by seven municipalities that were also alarmed by this law and its implications for their local authority when it came to the environment. And um, we, you know, made the case. And the case actually went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And in December of 2013, we got this powerful victory that said that the um, the provisions of this law that we were challenging would in fact result in a violation of the Pennsylvania Environmental Rights Amendment, what I now define to be the Pennsylvania Green Amendment. And as a result, the provisions of the law that we were challenging were unconstitutional and never could go into force or effect at all in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. That was the first time in this landmark victory that the Delaware Riverkeeper Network secured that the Pennsylvania Constitution was used to lift up environmental rights to this highest constitutional standing. It was in the wake of that victory, right, that I thought about, wow, the, the power of what we had accomplished. I looked at Pennsylvania's constitutional amendment, identified what were the key qualities that allowed us to achieve this victory, what I now call my Green Amendment criteria. And I looked at every state across the nation, and I found that at that time, there was only one other state that had an amendment of this kind, and that was Montana. And I decided that I was going to change that. And so I started my Green Amendment movement. I wrote the book, The Green Amendment, Securing Our Right to a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. The second edition just came out um, uh, late last year. It's now called The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. And um, and I started you know, going around the nation trying to spread this message about the power and importance of this pathway for environmental protection. Last year, we got an amendment passed in the state of New York. Um, well, actually, at the, in November of 2021, so it went into effect in January of 2022. But I'm also working with communities um, in about 15 states now who are seeking to get this kind of highest level of protection for their own states and their own communities. And again, as I go forth doing this work, um, seeking this critical protection at the state level, we're also, you know, laying the foundation of understanding that's going to be necessary to when the time is right, we don't want to do it prematurely, but when the time is right to seek and secure a federal amendment as well. And since our 2013 victory, there have been a number of cases. In fact, I just wrote up and posted to the website just before our show today, uh -huh. a new legal decision that has come out where the Pennsylvania Green Amendment was used to ensure that the government was undertaking appropriate environmental considerations as part of the decision-making process and not just allowed to ignore the environmental ramifications of a proposal, but had to undertake this their constitutional duty to consider the environmental impacts as part of decision making. And I have on the resources page of our website, I have multiple examples in Pennsylvania, in Montana, and now also in New York State, where the Green Amendments are making critical different a critical difference in helping communities secure protections 
that were otherwise unachievable. Now I want to ask a selfish question. Uh, my mom lives not far upstate New York, about 90 minutes northwest of the city. I'm in New York. And some years ago, she and a lot of her neighbors had banned fracking stickers and they were trying to ban fracking, which I believe was banned. But I'm sure the forces are still trying to restore fracking. But now my state has an amendment, a green amendment. What what can I do if I see something like that happening? What, what do I do? Do I file? Do I talk to you? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're, you know, what you're taking on. So in Pennsylvania, fracking was in the state before we had a living, breathing, thriving green amendment. So at this point, the amendment is being used to figure out how to um, ensure that when those operations are advancing, they're doing so in a way that also respects and protects environmental rights. You know, and that's going to take time because the industry is already here and it's been fast proliferating. It's on the ground. And so we have to figure out, you know, how does the amendment apply to that already existing circumstance? Um, on the other hand, right, as you said, in New York, um, my Delaware Riverkeeper Network, as well as my Green Amendments for the Generations organizations, you know, have been really key in securing the ban on fracking and, of course, securing the New York Green Amendment. Because there's so much evidence and so much science to document and demonstrate the devastating consequences for the environment from an industry like fracking, if fracking tried to come in and tried to lift that, that those protections, right, and force their way into the state, the people would have their constitutional right to clean water and air and a healthful environment to ensure that, frankly, that that ban on fracking was not lifted because there's just so much evidence that if it were, it would, in fact, there would be a violation just necessarily de facto of the environmental rights of the people of the state, right? So it could be used to keep that kind of practice out. So, you know, it depends what you're talking about in terms of how to use the amendment what is the circumstance or the threat that you're facing that will dictate how the amendment might be able to come into play and be helpful. But the one thing to remember is that the amendment is always focused on government action. So you're not going to have neighbor suing neighbor and you're not going to have a neighbor suing another neighbor about the the because their barbecue smells which you know is an example i hear because they have one tree in a place that the other neighbor doesn't like it the first off it's about government action number 1 and number 2 the 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 harm has to rise to that constitutional level which really is a high bar right so these kinds of ridiculous examples that the opposition puts forth are really just red herring fear mongering um and really have no application in the environmental context but what we have to look for is what is the government action that's allowing the harm that we're concerned about? Is it a permit? Is it a regulation? You know, is it, what is it? And that is the action that we're going to go after. Now, sometimes the government is going to be the bad actor themselves, right? And they're the ones that are going to be trying to put in place some sort of a devastating operation that's going to inflict the environmental um, rights 
infringement. But sometimes it's about the government putting in place a regulation or a permit that allows the devastating environmental consequences to be perpetrated by a third party, by an industrial operator, by a developer. So we wouldn't, in those circumstances, be going after the industrial operator or the developer directly. We would be going after the government action that is allowing them to behave in that devastating way. And if we're victorious, one of the values is, one, we stop that infringement on our constitutional right, but we are also now setting precedent with regards to government behavior. So every time the government is in a similar circumstance, um, then this new legal precedent will ensure that they ju- don't just knee-jerk, you know, issue their, their permits or approvals, but they actually do so in compliance with the precedent that will ensure that the outcome is protective of the environmental rights. So that's one of the one of the many, many benefits of being focused on government action is that every time we achieve a victory, we achieve a precedent that will apply to all government action that comes after. So the the beneficial impacts are much broader, much more significant, much more meaningful. You're making me almost salivate at the things around me that I see that I feel so helpless about, but maybe I'm not so helpless now if my state has passed this law. I mean, now remember, it's not a law, it's a constitutional amendment. And the other thing I want to say is, right, it's not the amendment is not just about litigation, right? So that's what people focus on, and that's where we set precedent that helps guide government action. But in the first instance, the Green Amendment is about getting better government action to avoid environmental harm and as a result, avoid the devastating consequences and avoid the need for litigation. Every time a government government official right takes office, they are obliged to uphold the Constitution. Now that we have added environmental rights to the New York Constitution, and hopefully we'll add environmental rights to constitutions across our nation, we will be ensuring that when government is engaged in decision making, it is being mindful of this constitutional entitlement of the people and their obligation as good government officials to protect the state's natural resources for present and future generations. And so they're going to be passing laws and regulations and issuing or not issuing permits with an eye towards fulfilling that constitutional entitlement and obligation. So we're going to be getting better decisions from the get-go. We're not even going to be able to know about all of the wealth of benefits that come from the amendment because it's going to now be infused into government decision-making. So there are going to be so many harms that are just avoided from like from the very early stages of decision-making when nobody's even recording what's happening, right? So the benefits for, for avoiding harm are dramatic and tremendous. Litigation is only going to come in in those circumstances when government really gets it wrong And the level of harm rises to that highest constitutional level. And because in those circumstances, we have a constitutional entitlement, we will be able to go to court on an even playing field with government and with the impacted industry and make our case. Whereas right now, 
in those situations and circumstances, we can't. We can't even get into the courtroom or make this same kind of constitutional argument. And when it comes to government decision making, because there's no obligation to protect environmental rights, we don't get the benefit from that decision making point right you know at the earliest stages of decision making all the way through that just doesn't even exist um and so we lose those benefits as well yeah in leadership we talk about the symbolic value of things as separate from a legal specific legal value and not to say that they're um juxtaposed but there's huge symbolic value in having something as a, as a constitutional amendment because it provides a north star it provides guidance to people also, I have to comment on, you were talking about people throw up red herrings of, oh, we we'll, won't we'll do this, we we'll won't do that. And there's a couple of cases that come to mind for me on environmental uh, victories, I would say, that the big one for me is that around the year 2000, New York, I believe state banned cigarettes in the workplace because of secondhand smoke. And the bars and restaurants in Manhattan complained, we're going to go out of business because people are just going to go, you know, they want to drink after work and they want to smoke when they drink and they're going to go across the river to New Jersey and we're going to lose the business. And do you know what happened? I don't know how well this is known outside of New York or even within New York, but I think two and a half years later, New Jersey had to ban it because people were going into Manhattan for the clean air, going into Manhattan for clean air that people just didn't know what clean was. And they just took for granted that, well, it must be worse or it must not be worth anything. But when people actually got a taste of it, they liked it more. Mm-hmm. Some of the things are happening with bike lanes and making pedestrian-only pedestrian areas, like Times Square, they, it was a big fight, especially from the local businesses there to say, we want cars so we can get traffic. And then it became pedestrian-only and now no one wants it to go back. No one wants cigarettes in bars and restaurants in Manhattan now, as far as I know. And people, if they don't know what clean is, they they can't imagine how much they'll like it more. Like no one wants to go back. Well, and the other thing is, and I think that's such good points. Um, the other thing is people don't know the options, right? They're being told by industry and politicians, well, if you want to get all the energy you need, you have to frack. Or if you want to get um, French fries, you have to have it in a in packaging that's lined with toxic PFAS. Or, you know, if you want a frying pan that you can clean easily, well, it has to have toxic Teflon, you know, and and they don't know um, that one, they don't know that these choices are having serious and significant harm on their health. If they did know that, they wouldn't choose them. Um, and often they don't know that there actually is another option. But because government isn't mandating it and it's cheaper or easier for industry to use the the option harmful to human health, well, then that's what they're going to choose. And that's all that's available to the people. But when people start to learn, you know, popcorn bags are lined with PFAS um, and that has serious health on, you know, serious consequences for their health of your children. But, you know, there's a popcorn bag that you can buy that's not lined with PFAS. And, you know, so go do that. Get your yummy popcorn and don't poison, you know, your body or or, or the bodies of your children, family or friends. Um, but people shouldn't it shouldn't be on people to have to do that kind of in-depth research on every single aspect of their lives. That is something we entrust to government. Government should have put in place the rules and the regulations to say no PFAS 
in popcorn bags, no PFAS period anywhere in any food, in any clothing, in any carpeting, right? No PFAS because it's poisoning people and it's not necessary. There are other options. So that's another piece of it. As you said, there's another level of people not knowing. It's not just not experiencing. It's just people don't have the knowledge of the science or the data and they don't have the time to do all of that work on every aspect of their lives. That is what we trust government to do. But all too often, government refuses to do that work in the environmental context because they're too busy trying to please their buddies in industry so that they can get more money and more profits, despite the fact that it means sacrificing the safety and the health of our children, of our families, of our friends, of our pets, and of future generations. And with a constitutional right, we shift that. So government can't just choose to listen to their buddies in industry and help them make more profits. They are now constitutionally obligated to prioritize the health and the safety of people and the environment. That becomes their duty and their obligation. And it is not a choice. And when they fail in that constitutional duty and obligation, we, the people, again, can do something about it. We have barely scratched the surface here. And I, the more that you talk, the more I want to ask more. And I mean, we, I haven't even gotten to what listeners can do. Well, first, I put in, I'm, I'm going to put in the write-up the links to for, forthegenerations.org. And I, but I want to talk a lot more about what people can do in their states, in states where this already exists. And also the passion that you have, I want to get a lot more of where it's coming from because it, it, you are, so many people feel like, oh, what I do doesn't matter. What can one person do? And I feel like you are the opposite of that. <laughs> I, I feel myself the opposite of that as well. And I want to get that out to people because I suspect that there's, you're barely scratching the surface of what you could be doing yourself as well. So I love that. And I appreciate that kind compliment. And I'd love to come on a show again very soon. Um, to talk about that. But in the meanwhile, if people get the book, The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe and Healthy Environment, that really lays it all out, right? So they will get the basis of what this is, why it's important, and also how they can start to get involved. If they go to ForTheGenerations.org, they will have a, a pathway to every single state where activity is progressing on the Green Amendment front and be able to, from there, start to get engaged. Um, all the states are at a different level and the opportunities are different, but that's a place to go and learn what's happening in your state. And if there's nothing happening in your state, then it also gives you a pathway to get in touch with me. Some of my most powerful Green Amendment movements um, all started with one person hearing a show like this and saying, I want to make this happen in my state and literally calling me up and saying, how do we do it? And what I say is, let's partner up and let's figure it out. And we start to talk and work and develop a strategy that's appropriate for their state. And I can say from my experience, that if anyone out there is thinking, oh, that's too big of a hurdle, it's too much, it's, it's crazy, it's, it's pie in the sky, the more you think about it, the more you talk about it, the more it just makes sense. And, and not having it doesn't make sense. It's like this big gap. Agreed. Well, my, I know I have to go, but thank you very much. And, and and I look forward to booking you again soon and bringing you back and, and getting far past just scratching the surface. 
Thank you very much. I love your enthusiasm and all you're doing, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to our next conversation. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.